Hello, welcome to The Briefing, the show that gets you up to speed every morning on the news you need to know. It is Wednesday, the 22nd of April, and today we're going to be talking about the Chinese wet markets. What actually are they, and should they be shut down? Now, joining me today to talk through the headlines is Annika Smethurst. I know you're taking the lockdown very seriously there in Canberra. Have you spotted any ministers or anyone well-known out there sort of flaunting the rules? I'm told there was a member of the Morrison front bench seen at my local IGA yesterday, but I'm sure they were just popping out for some essential items. Yeah, well, that's that's allowed. Don't be too harsh. <laughs> Not toilet paper. They still don't have any of that yet. Wow. All right, before we get into the wet markets, Annika, let's get into the news headlines. Sadly, it's young Australians who've been hit hardest by the pandemic shutdown. Yeah, that's people under 20 who have taken the biggest pay cuts, followed by people between 20 and 30. So it is really that under 30 group that's feeling the brunt of this shutdown. Yeah, so those are the pay cuts. So that's for people that still have a job. Um, The ABS data has shown that 800,000 positions um, have gone in just three weeks of a shutdown. Yeah, and more than a quarter of all cafe and restaurant jobs have gone. Prime Minister Scott Morrison says a staggering number of people are also joining the unemployment queue. We have now processed since the 16th of March 517,000 job seeker claims. And by the end of this week, we'll have processed as many job seeker claims in six weeks than we will normally do in the entirety of the year. So Annika, this story goes to one of the biggest tension points of this whole pandemic, which is that young people are taking the biggest economic hit, whilst old people are at the most risk of health problems. So it's it's a tricky balance there. It was weird. When this first started, I wrote a column on it and I thought it might be the great unification of the generations. Mm. They've always said we've never had any hardship or gone through anything and perhaps this was time to prove that we could, you know, do well in difficult times. But it just seems quite a conflict, doesn't it, that young people are really bearing the brunt of this um, to protect a lot of older Australians, a lot of boomers. And I don't know about you, but in my circle, a lot of older Australians tend to still be popping out illegally and maybe not taking it seriously as they should. Yeah, they seem to want to have this stoic carrying on attitude and not not change their lifestyle, even though they're the most at risk. Um, But I think given young people are losing their jobs, they're the ones who actually want to get back to living life as normal so they can actually survive financially. Um, but the more they do that, the more they're putting older people at risk. So as a, as a policy choice for the government, that's really tricky. Absolutely. And the other difficult thing is when the pubs and you know cafes do reopen, people won't have that much money. It's not like these jobs will just bounce back. You know, If we do go into a recession and face 10% unemployment, those industries are really going to feel this into the new year. Yeah. All right. Well, there's some mysterious news coming out of North Korea. Kim Jong-un. There are reports, though, that the North Korean supreme leader is fighting for his life. That's right, Tom. He missed a couple of events, including a celebration to mark his grandfather's birthday, which apparently he's never missed and is a very important thing in North Korea. So, of course, that's prompted a little bit of speculation about where he might be. Yeah, there's a lot of media reports um, allegedly sourced from a US intelligence official Um, apparently that report said that he had had surgery recently and he was gravely ill. He is 140 kilos and he's a big smoker. 
Yeah, White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien told Fox they don't know that much. North Korea is a very closed society. There's not a free press there. Uh, they're parsimonious with the information that they provide about uh, many things, including uh, the health of uh, Kim Jong-un. So we're, we're monitoring those developments closely. That was White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. And Annika, I guess the fear is here that if Kim Jong-un did pass away, and um, we don't know who would take over this rogue state and whether they'd be a more dangerous leader. This is it. There's actually no natural successor. And I think it's something they didn't think perhaps they needed to think about because he is 36 years old. Yeah. He's basically a millennial leader, <laughs> uh, but obviously not in um, very good shape. All right. And some positive news, although we're sort of putting a lot of hope in any positive news around the coronavirus. But in the UK, they're starting to test a coronavirus vaccine on humans. Yeah, from tomorrow, 500 volunteers will get a jab at Oxford University and they say it has about an 80% chance of success. Not sure how they can measure that, but I'd like those odds, Tom. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Given that we've heard that uh, a vaccine is 12 to 18 months away, the UK are now saying that uh, if this trial is successful, the vaccine could be here as early as September. Here's what the UK Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, had to say. In normal times, reaching this stage would take years. And I'm very proud of the work taken so far. Wow, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting news. Part of me just wants to be full of hope. Another part of me is quite sceptical. I'm very sceptical of this one. We've never actually had a vaccine for a coronavirus. So while everybody's working a lot harder uh, and there's a lot of money being poured into this, I'm not too sure. But obviously Scott Morrison feels really positive about this. He actually took a phone call from Bill Gates uh, last night uh, to discuss the possibility of this. Now, Bill Gates is a huge donor to the World Health Organization. He's their single biggest individual donor and has injected hundreds of millions of dollars into the WHO to try and find a cure. You're listening to The Briefing, and in the second part of the show, we go deeper on one big story, and today it's wet markets. Look, they've been blamed for COVID-19, but also two other deadly outbreaks of bird flu and SARS. So what are wet markets, and should they be closed altogether? Yeah, and it might be hard to believe, but the Wuhan wet markets are already back in business. And our government is usually pretty careful to play nice with China, given they're our biggest trading partner. But Treasurer Josh Frydenberg didn't hold back on this one. It's unbelievable. It's extraordinary that the World Health Organization sees it fit for these wet markets to continue in China. They shouldn't. And the PM had some fighting words on this one too. We can clearly see the great risks to the health and well-being of the rest of the world food supplies and, and how they are provided to the public and how they're treated, um, these these things are, can be very dangerous, as we've seen. That was the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. So let's find out more about what these wet markets actually are and whether they should be banned. And we're going to speak to a China expert who actually grew up in Wuhan in just a moment. But first, let's go to um, Annabelle Brett. Annabelle, you were a young Aussie traveller. You went to the wet markets and saw it firsthand in two Chinese cities and you ended up a vegetarian afterwards. So what was the most disgusting thing you saw? Definitely, um, I think they were dead cats hanging from windows. Skinned. Yeah. Skinned. Yeah. I was thinking just before about one of the worst things I'd seen in a market, and it wasn't in Asia, it was in Syria, but it was an entire camel's head. And I know, Annabelle, you went vegetarian for a little while after this, and that, that was the closest I've ever come to giving up meat, I think. It was gross. So did you see them actually killing animals in the wet markets, and did you see what we've heard about where 
different species of animals are dripping blood over each other. Yeah, the, I did see the blood stuff um, and I didn't see any, any animals being killed on the spot, but you could tell when you walk past some of them because they were like scraping the animal stuff off off the tables. And a lot of this was on the road, so it wasn't like behind the comfort of a sanitary glass container. It was on the street dripping onto the footpath. Annabelle, can you give us a sense of, say, the smells? You know, you say and the sounds. You didn't see any animals being killed, but what's the sort of feeling when you walk in there? What are you hearing? What are you seeing? Uh, it's, it smells like a sort of seafood market, but not as nice. Um, nothing like those Sydney rock oyster markets and all that mm-hmm. stuff. It's very, very different. Um, a lot of people really, really close together. So you kind of can't escape going and actually walking up and, and nearly touching things. And yeah, the big thing is obviously when you go to Woolies or Coles, you know, you grab a piece of vegetable or fruit and you have to put it straight into a plastic bag or you only grab that one. People were actually touching the meat and the food and like switching through it. Even if you did go and grab a piece of meat to cook, I fear that, you know, 20 or 30 other people have touched that raw meat before you. So given what you saw, what did you think when you saw COVID-19 spreading around the world and it was, you know, and that it was linked to the the markets in Wuhan? Um, Well, I, I think a lot of these markets take place in every country, particularly a lot of third world countries. I, I think there's a reason in Australia why we are so sanitary, why people wear gloves when they're dealing with stuff like that, why things are, meats are refrigerated correctly and why we don't eat something. Now, Annabelle, did you get sick when you were in China? <laughs> I didn't eat meat after that particular adventure <laughs> because of the things Never that my mom's advice. <laughs> yeah, so I only ate vegetarian after that, so I was totally fine. All right, interesting to hear about your experience, Annabelle. Thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so quite a graphic account there, Annika, from Annabelle from those wet markets. Um, Let's go to a China expert, Dr. Delia Lin. Um, She's a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Delia, thanks for joining us. You actually grew up in Wuhan. You've been to a lot of these markets. Can you explain what they're like? Yeah, so wet markets is a term in English that we use to refer to a wide range of um, produce markets that sell, that offer fresh meats, fruit, vegetables at affordable prices. Okay, so does that involve um, live animal trade and are the animals being killed in the markets? Um, yes, traditionally. Um, traditionally, you would see um, a live bird. Uh, people call it live bird markets. So that's a, a sort of a section in those wet markets where chicken and ducks mainly uh, are slaughtered um, in front of you and uh, are, are sold. So that's in traditional what traditional wet markets look like. But since the outbreak of uh, bird flu and a few outbreaks in China, uh, a lot of changes have taken place in many cities in China, including Wuhan. So in Wuhan in particular, by February 2017, uh, Wuhan has... So in Wuhan, there were 445 uh, wet markets. And by February 2017, um, all those live live bird markets has been banned um, in all the 445 wet markets across the city completely banned. So a uh, wet market uh, manager told me that the only live uh, animal that's allowed in those markets are uh, live fish. And obviously this wet market in Wuhan has been linked to this current outbreak, but it's not the first time wet markets have actually been linked to viral outbreaks before. So do you think there's a way they could be improved if not shut down? How could 
they they be cleaner? How could we make sure that nothing originates there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that's something that uh, China needs to do all the time, and they have put in place a lot of measures already. But uh, uh, but cleanliness, hygiene is has always been an issue with those wet markets since day one, and that's exactly also why um, since two thousand and two, um, the Chinese government actually doesn't want those wet markets. They would rather those wet markets to all turn into supermarkets. So in 2000, from 2002, um, the Chinese government has initiated a program called Transformation of Wet Markets into Supermarkets uh, Project and asked the um, local governments to try to do that. But it's been a very, very slow process. It's been very difficult uh, for various reasons. The reason why the government actually wanted to get rid of those wet markets, turn them into supermarkets, was mainly because of the pressure of the population growth and also inefficient use of the land. Delia, a lot of us are hearing and learning about wet markets for the first time because of COVID-19, but you don't have to do much reading to find out that they were linked to the SARS outbreak and the bird flu outbreak. What exactly were the links between the wet markets and those outbreaks? Do we know for sure that it was Chinese wet markets that, that caused them? I think with the with the bird flu, uh, there was a lot of evidence to show that there was a direct link uh, between those uh, the sales of the live animals there, in particular chicken and uh, ducks. It's very likely that those animals would carry um, bacteria and viruses and then transmit it into human beings. There has been a lot of research done on that, and also there was a link in there. But we're not too sure about COVID-19. There's still a lot of mystery as to the origin of it. But with with the bird flu, uh, definitely there was a link. I guess it's hard for us to understand, you know, all the different practices that go on in these markets. And a lot of people in Australia, I think, are are quite angry that a problem from China that has been identified in the past and linked to previous outbreaks is still happening and has cost us um, lives and in so many cases our our livelihoods. So do we have a right to blame these wet markets for COVID-19 and which parts of them in particular are the really problematic elements? Which have changed and which need to change? The reason why people are angry with wet markets is understandable in that because the outbreak of COVID-19 originated allegedly originated in a particular market uh, in Wuhan, and that's called uh, Hualan Seafood Wholesale Market. But we just need to bear in mind that that's not an average wet market. It's a uh, it's a, a very different one in that this particular business um, holds wildlife trade license. Uh, We need to ask the question how this license is issued and how the operation has been going on. Um, So this particular market has about 600, over 600 uh, stores and eight of them hold that license. means eight of them are able to trade life white animal. Now Delia, you've lived in Wuhan and your family is still in Hubei province. But have you been to this market? And when you say they have live animal trading, what sort of animals are we talking about? Uh, well, I haven't been there myself, and um, and usually people wouldn't go there. Uh, ordinary ordinary customers, uh, consumers wouldn't go there because that's wildlife. It's not a part of uh, uh, food that you eat in everyday life. Uh, so that's another sort of um, 
I guess, stigma a lot of people have that they think that the Chinese just love those exotic wild animals and and they eat them in everyday meal, but that's not true. And in fact, that in January, um, Beijing conducted a survey on uh, people's perceptions of uh, of wildlife consumption. Ninety seven percent of the respondents uh, say that wildlife consumption should be banned. They do not agree with consumption of wildlife at all. It's great to drill down with you on this particular market in Wuhan and the particular trade within that market where their practices just really weren't up to scratch. Is is what they were doing already illegal or does it need to be made illegal? A uh, very good question. Um, so this market actually has been undergoing quite a few investigations and turned out that it does have a license. Eight of them have got license for wildlife trade. But then after the outbreak of COVID-19, more investigation has been done and people have found actually some illegal uh, operations uh, in that market. So I think a lot of questions need to be asked about that market per se, um, but then it's not uh, right to conflate wildlife trade with wet markets in general. Now, Delia, Wuhan and Hubei province has got a bit of a bad rap recently. You've obviously spent a lot of time there. Your family's from there. Can you tell us what is actually like there beyond the wet market? What is this city about? <laughs> yeah, a city is a very vibrant city. Um, there was a saying that uh, um, Wuhan people have a very distinct, I think, um, kind of personality as a city. It's a, a city of known to be a city of rebels because that's where Republic of China started, uh, where the, um, the uprising started um, in Wuhan. Well, Delia, really interesting to hear about the other side of Wuhan. I think, unfortunately, it's always going to be known for COVID-19 to a lot of people. Um, thank you so much for joining us. That was Delia Lin. Um, she's from the University of Melbourne. She's a senior lecturer in Chinese studies. Annika, the the main takeout for me was that we need to know more about wet markets and which parts are dodgy and which parts are kind of just everyday life that are kind of reasonable. Yeah, it sounds like there might be a few cowboys in the industry, should we say. So, look, it might be more of a targeted response as opposed to a widespread shutting down because whilst there does seem to be problems, it appears that these things are really important culturally to Chinese life. Yeah, and they are changing. Like, they are gradually moving more towards supermarkets where this risk would be lower but they are also trying to stamp out the dodgier practices within the dodgier markets. The challenging thing is going to be for those of us who've really felt the pain of uh, the coronavirus in other parts of the world is getting some kind of assurance that they're doing enough to stamp out the dodgy practices moving forward. And I guess that's where it's hard. It sounds like Chinese officials are struggling themselves to get a hold on some of this. We know uh, governments around the world haven't always uh, believed some of the figures coming out of China, and we really need more than just an assurance that the uh, dodgy side of these markets are going to shut down. But as Dealey said there, it does sound like there's another issue that's really important, and that's the wildlife trade. It's not just about the markets, but about the licences and where these animals are being sold. That is it for today's briefing. Tomorrow, Annika, dating in a pandemic. Love in the time of the Rona. We're going to speak (laughs) to people that are still out there going on Tinder dates, but working out how they do it when we're not actually allowed near each other. Yeah, a lot of exercise dates going on, which is very wholesome. But one of the big questions is, what sort of exercise do you do? If it's a walk or a run, how long do you go for? Because you're going to be stuck with that person for that, that whole 
walk. With no excuse to leave. We'll find out that all about that tomorrow. So that's tomorrow's podcast. Um, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, the briefing podcast. You can get it on the Podcast One app or on whatever app you get your podcast from normally. And make sure you follow us on Instagram as well at the briefing podcast. Speak to you tomorrow. Bye. A Podcast One production.